Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hey, witches, Marcel here, dropping in ahead of this great episode to tell you that we are just over 100 patrons away from reaching our goal of 1,000 monthly supporters. If we hit that goal before May 20th, we're unlocking a live Zoom Witch Please Tell Me Q&A for all our patrons. Hannah's birthday is May 25th, and I know for a fact that this is her very dearest birthday wish. Reaching 1,000 supporters would be a financial game-changer for us. It would mean more stability for our team, more funds to create perks, and it would get me and Hannah a little bit closer to earning a living wage for our work on the show. You can become a Patreon supporter at any tier for more perks and bonus content like Q&As, interviews, behind-the-scenes action, and unedited archived episodes, not to mention sweet merch like mugs and stickers. If you're already a Patreon supporter, thank you so much. You can still help us out by spreading the word. If 10% of our Patreon supporters got one or more friends to support the show, we'd easily hit our goal. Just head over to patreon.com slash ohwhichplease for more info. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, I am so delighted that we are finally going to talk about my favorite topic. Oh, what's that? Men. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, famously, I'm a huge fan. And so I want to discuss some of my favorite men in the sorting chat. Remember, like, five feminists agree so-and-so is an acceptable man? Do you remember when we, like, were able to agree that someone was, like, (laughs) the best (laughs) the best praise we could offer to our male friends is that they were acceptable men? (laughs) I don't know if it was a larger social phenomenon. I certainly remember a phase within our... (laughs) 
<laughs> social group, definitely five feminists agree. And definitely the term acceptable man, which we used primarily for sort of the Neils of the world. Yeah. <laughs> what? Oh, and our, and wh- who? My husband? Sorry. Coaches, <laughs> coaches gesturing to her finger as though Trevor is even slightly acceptable and he is not <laughs> completely unacceptable. No, no. Trevor's, Trevor's great. <laughs> I think only friends could be acceptable. I think that like any like partner or lover or anything like that, it was like, it was too dicey, too complicated. So you say, Marcel, remember as though those were the good old days when we believed any men could be acceptable. But now, now we've realized that we were being too optimistic, too optimistic. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one. I think that acceptable, acceptable man or acceptable men in plural was like, Something that we would sort of jokingly talk about. I want to say it was before the Me it was Too. A pre, it was definitely a pre-Me Too joke. It was totally pre-Me Too. And it was when we sincerely thought that we knew whether or not the men in our lives were acceptable based on what we knew about them. You know, then Me Too happened and we were no longer confident in giving anyone the label acceptable man (laughs) because you never fucking know. (laughs) I mean, trust no man, for sure. Trust no man. Despite the irony of this opening sorting chat, because Mm -hmm. I am on the books for being a dyed-in-the-mole (laughs) misandrist. I nevertheless have a very deep fondness for a particular brand of gentle masculinity. Mm -hmm. I find it very, very soothing, a sort of soft daddy energy, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and that I think soft daddy energy can be possessed by anyone, regardless of gender. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time in my pandemic bubble, the three of us have a lot of conversations about like, who has to be daddy today? (laughs) Which has confused a lot of outsiders into believing that we are a thruple, which we are not. I mean, listen, we're as close as to a thruple as you can get when one member of that thruple is asexual and doesn't live with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we do talk a lot about who's going to be who's going to be daddy and about the kind of daddy you are, you know, barbecue daddies. Discipline daddy. Discipline daddy. Some, sometimes somebody has to be discipline daddy. Dinner daddy. <laughs> Dawn is always dinner daddy. Well, that's good and right. And while he may not be an acceptable man. Because there are no acceptable men. Because anymore. there are no acceptable men. He's a pretty good dinner daddy. So we've really gone from like full categories just down to like acceptable traits. <laughs> this man <laughs> possesses certain acceptable traits, such as dinner daddy. Which I think really speaks to, you know, a larger shift in our collective conversations about gender from these sort of meta categories that encapsulate whole people to like sort of, you know, more fragmented performances that vary from moment. Does any of this, are you buying any of this? I just like it when men make me dinner. I like it when men let me speak. (laughs) Mm, I like it when anyone makes me dinner. The bar is quite low. I mean, if you love it when people let you speak, I don't know how you have handled this ongoing collaboration with me. Well, we have a different relationship, don't we, Hannah? <laughs> you are not my daddy, and you never will be. Whew, so that's the end of the sorting chat, right? That was fun. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thank you.
You might think that with so many tall friends of ours, we would have revised our stance on no tall men, but that's not the kind of revision we do here at Which Please. Darn right, Hannah. We commit to our bits. <laughs> Today's guest, Aspen, is going to introduce us to masculinity studies as a critical framework for thinking through the men of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. But before we introduce them, let's do a few quick refreshers, shall we? We shall. So, unsurprisingly, we started theorizing white masculinity as a hegemonic identity formation in our very first episode of this reboot, because <laughs> it's really hard to talk about this series without talking about, like, masculinity. So, in that episode, we talked about chosen one narratives and how universalized hero figures who are supposed to stand in for all of us to be like an everyman figure, like mm -hmm. Harry, of course, but also all these other chosen ones like King Arthur and Aragorn and Luke Skywalker. They're almost always straight white cis men because those are the people mm -hmm. who are figured as universal that we can all identify with. That's why Hamlet's the great universal narrative. Because truly, what more of an everyman than a Danish prince? I rolled my eyes so hard just now that they scraped the ceiling. So <laughs> Yeah, you're going to pull something if you roll your eye that hard. <laughs> so while we commented on this fact in book one, episode one, we took a deeper dive in book two, episode one, so our first discussion of the Chamber of Secrets, when we introduced feminist literary criticism. Mm -hmm. Particularly pertinent to our conversation today is this quote that we shared from Bell Hooks. Quote, Making us all identify with men who are violent as potentially our heroes is one of the strategies that patriarchy uses to perpetuate and reaffirm itself. End quote. Ooh. Great quote. Mm. So applicable. Oh, so applicable. <laughs> we took a closer look at the Wizarding World's models of quote-unquote good and bad masculinities in Book 2, Episode 5, Celebrity Studies. Celebrity gave us a lens through which to consider some of the characteristics of white masculinity, including being active rather than passive, being the subject rather than the object of the gaze, with celebrity itself being a feminized role, as exemplified in Lockhart as a model of failed masculinity. And some of the subtext for Lockhart's failed masculinity became clearer to us in Book 4, Episode 5, when Taylor Algeyer Follett joined us to talk about trans studies and transcoding in the Harry Potter books. In that episode, we focused in on the way these books represent gender in general as a stable, knowable, and essential quality of characters, and how it codes characters like Rita Skeeter as trans in order to figure those characters as dangerous and untrustworthy. Considerations of masculinity have threaded through all of our discussions because we are so frequently looking at male characters and these books <laughs> are full of them. But there's one last puzzle piece we want to sort of force into place here. You know, like you do when you're good at puzzles, where you sort of jam it in there? Close enough. Which is Dumbledore's role as the, like, patriarch par excellence in this series. The unquestionablest and absolutist of male authorities. <laughs> so, in Book 5, Episode 1, we had a discussion about archival studies, and we talked about Dumbledore as an Archon. So, to remind people, that comes from Jacques Derrida's Archive Fever, in which he links the archive to the Greek word 
arche, meaning commandment or authority or like giving orders. So the archon is the one who not only gathers the various documents that establish laws and commandments, but interprets the laws and issues the commandments. So they gather text, but also have the authority to interpret and make meaning out of those texts, which we see so much of in this book, Dumbledore just interpreting the (laughs) heck out of texts. So we talked a little in that episode about how much Dumbledore loves to collect things and people, Mm -hmm. which is a point we expanded on significantly in our first episode on book six, this book, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. When we talked about Slytherin pedagogy and the idea of Dumbledore as a collector. So in that episode, I started to get a little upset about how Dumbledore treats Harry. Wait, that's when you started? Oh my. And in this episode, I'm planning on getting a lot upset about how Dumbledore treats Draco. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is exciting. But before that, we should probably meet our guest. Let's do that. You've heard about kissing a frog and turning it into a prince, but have you heard of kissing a theory segment and turning it into a critical understanding of masculinity? Of course you haven't. But that's the kind of transformation we're into here at Which Please, and we do this in Transfiguration Class. (laughs) Wow, I shouldn't be allowed to write these intros. So, we have a guest. Aspen, pronouns they, them, is a white trans femme doctoral candidate in socio-cultural anthropology in North America. They are also a wannabe bike mechanic. Ask them about nearly chopping off a finger with a chain ring. I won't. And a caretaker to a loud and often furious cat. As an academic, their work is focused on whiteness, masculinities, and athletics in North America, with a particular focus on affective sporting movement and modern white nationalisms. More broadly, they write on issues of transformation, aspire to collapse siloed disciplines, and have suddenly discovered they love to dance. They're slowly aiding the movement against tall men by just up and not being one anymore. Welcome, Aspen! Welcome, Aspen. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I know that we're supposed to talk about masculinity studies, but I also just kind of want to talk about your newfound love of dance, but maybe we can do that after. Actually, just real quick, just tell us about your newfound love for dance. A friend of mine invited me to a nightclub after I had worked a six-hour shift and I was exhausted and I said yes, which I never would have done, and it was delightful. It was not anxiety-producing, and it was just such a fun time. Oh my god, I remember being young and dancing. I love dancing, and clubs are too hot for me. Mm. And so at this point, I'm really dedicated to, like, a kitchen dance party, which Mm -hmm. obviously has disappeared entirely during the pandemic, and or a wedding dance floor. Oh my god. Part of my fear of clubs now is that I absolutely cannot tolerate being non-consensually touched by a stranger. Which, you know, is never good, but I've Mm -hmm. had a tolerance for as a younger person. Which reminds me of an absolutely incredible zine that one of my students made this semester, which was a guide she created for men on what to do with your hands. In various situations, we were not sure what to do with your hands. And so, like, there was one page that was like, 
oh no, you have to walk by this person. What do you do with your hands? And then the next page was like, nothing. Leave them by your side. (laughs) So I feel like hand confusion is a perfect segue into masculinity studies. Totally. Aspen, explain to us why men don't know what to do with their hands. I think it is a brief way in for me. Like, I think it's important to say that, like, when I got to graduate school or or school in general, I was so enamored with Foucault, as I think many young people are who are Mm -hmm. reading social theory for the first time. But you also learn very quickly in different settings that can't be just referencing that person all the time, especially like, no, like, that's probably not a good idea. And like, you're probably also not thinking super great. So I'm limiting the Foucault references as much as I can. However, I think it's a useful way in to think about how masculinity studies could be done. um, And in contrast to how it's done in the past. So I I think um, in the same way that kind of Foucault in his academic work really attempted to draw on deep archives in order to explain modern occurrences or modern identities or modern ways of being as a very intentional turn away from attempting to analyze something kind of only in its current moment. And that sort of deep historiography and deep attention to kind of absurdly absurdly small texts from the past kind of led to this incredible turn in gender and sexuality studies and kind of social theory in general. So I think that one way that we can think about masculinity studies is trying to kind of cobble together something that is similar now in terms of how kind of uh, Foucault was studying sexuality and how we might study masculine genders, as it were. Like if you if you read the Wikipedia page for like masculinity studies, you'll see that people cite some of the beginnings of, of masculinity studies as kind of popping up in the 1970s. But I think that's kind of a rather inaccurate way to think about the discipline as it exists now, just because those early attempts at quote-unquote, masculinity studies were closer to what we'd think about now as kind of men's rights activism. We wouldn't consider them part and parcel of the same thing anymore. So I'm hoping to kind of create, to try to move away from this kind of politicized approach um, with this like huge political valence, which is basically the opposite of misogyny, right? I mean, as you are all very aware, it's which please, it's not Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan. So we're not like talking about those people as essential to this discipline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're not. We're not interested in glorification of masculinity. But so, so I think it, the, the big turn kind of happened in the early 1990s when Ray Wynne Connell wrote a rather seminal text called uh, Masculinities. But I think it's telling that a book could be simply called Masculinities and stand out. Whereas obviously today uh, you can't do one word titles about whole whole kind of a ways of approaching the world and expect your book to be a hit. So like at the time it was fairly revolutionary to speak of masculinities plural because it was just understood as like a masculinity is just taken for granted to be one thing which is not feminine yeah just the idea of a plurality kind of like what hannah was talking about in the the beginning and kind of cobbling together these different aspects of the way we think about gender in the world and kind of slapping Mm -hmm. them onto ourselves and then thinking about whether or not that fits and moving on it also strikes me that this is right around the same time that whiteness studies is emerging and that part of what is revolutionary about both of these emergent fields is that they are taking something that has been historically treated as neutral and not an object of study and turning it into an object of study and naming it and considering it and being like, what does masculinity consist of? What does whiteness consist of? And the very act of naming becomes a 
a sort of shift in how we think about that formation. I mean, and I think it's telling that to, to know that like uh, that masculinity studies emerges out of gender studies, right? It, it emerges out mm-hmm. of feminist literary criticism. It emerges out of feminist sociology, feminist anthropology. In so doing, I think one thing that I'm um, that that is relevant, unfortunately, is that these masculinity studies, these early masculinity studies um, efforts remained very white. So despite the, those white, the whiteness studies kind of coming up at the same time, those things were just completely pulled apart kind of nonsensically. And I think that part of that is that since Raywin Connell is a sociologist, masculinity studies early on is very much rooted inside those methods, which tend to be rather quantitative and turn away from, for example, literature as mm. indicative of being or, or being a, a very good form of evidence for how people live mm. in the world in gendered ways. So, you know, if we include literature, then perhaps our sort of origin point for the field also shifts. Uh, Absolutely. Again, this is another case of the Wikipedia page doing a disservice to how we think about discipline, disciplinarity in academia and beyond. But yeah, I mean, we can think about James Baldwin, George Lamming. I'm I'm naming just some of the most famous black writers, right, from the from the 20th century. Chinua Achebe, right? Like all of these folks were doing masculinity studies in their personal writing about their experiences, the experiences of the people around them, and the experiences of black maleness, both in the United States and in the African diaspora. And I think the same could be said for many forms of indigenous masculinities. I I really love that thinking about disciplinary formations and how it is we mark the beginning of a discipline generally by some active institutionalization. So a lot of the time when we've been doing these sort of micro histories of disciplines or fields, I have pointed towards a like formative conference or like a first special issue or a first major book, which is, you know, so often the the marker we go to to be like, haha, this exists now. But of course, those forms of like the institutionalization of a field are so frequently the moment when white people made it official by paying attention. And when we like unproblematically accept that as the beginning of a field, we participate in the way that a lot of these fields appropriated knowledge from other communities in order to create themselves. Yeah, no, a hundred, so a hundred percent. And I think that, that thinking about another example, just recently y'all talked about like transgender studies quarterly, right? And which is, mm-hmm. I think 2015 and it's still yeah. quarterly, which is like fine. It's fine. I'm not angry, but it's Susan Stryker, Paul Preciado. All these people are writing in the 1990s and early 2000s. And yeah, suddenly it's a field in like the mid, mid 2015. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, totally agree. Totally agree. But yeah, I think that, that kind of modern masculinity studies is much better at hybridizing and understanding that sometimes that very kind of specific disciplinarity can be negative and can create kind of a bias or inaccuracy in the way that you're doing work such that you're not getting even close to the full picture. So largely, I think modern masculinity studies uh, scholars are kind of focused on trying to use those feminist and queer methodologies that have existed and are kind kind of continuing to advance and change such that they can kind of take a look at the existing conditions and rather than attempting to replicate them like those 1970s, you know, MRA folks, instead we have um, people just trying to understand what those, what the kind of conditions of masculinities are and what effects they have on the people who are experiencing them. However, the one cost of things getting really specific and also incredibly hybrid is that 
you can find yourself in a tiny, tiny slice of this, which I think I have um, personally too many times, just in terms of knowing that I can kind of pull seven or eight books about essentially folks who have left their left their country of origin, moved to another country and are playing recreational sports to feel more at home or part of that new country as a person. And the fact that there are seven books about that means that it can be really hard to get into the the kind of whole thing uh, as a broader topic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. We, we love to focus in academia. So we can and will go super narrow with masculinity studies and Harry Potter, which we're going to do in the next segment. But for now, Aspen, I'm wondering if you can maybe move us forward in time a little bit. Personally, I find that Foucault has his fingers in quite a number of theoretical cookie jars. Where cookies go? Who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? As creepy as that image may be, can you introduce us or talk to us about another theorist who is also pertinent to the field? Yeah, no, 100%. Quite a bit of the influence on how I've understood masculinities and studied them myself is based on the work of Gail Rubin. I think Gail's a really good, Gail Rubin's a very good example of someone who is doing that same sort of incredibly deep, detailed look back into the archives, um, both archives that a lot of people read and archives that no one has read in decades. And in doing so, I think has done a lot to demonstrate that the historical foundations of masculinity studies and perhaps gender studies or sexuality studies are actually kind of rooted in a largely forgotten uh, realm of academic thinking, which is sexology. Talk to us about sexology, because I feel like it maybe doesn't have such a good rap. Yes, 100% it doesn't. And I honestly, when I started uh, reading some of it, it's quite alienating, right? Because you're you're reading you know, turn of the 20th century uh, writing on gender and sexuality when these things previously were simply not theorized, right? So academics are starting to encounter these realms of human life as as academic objects of interest. And in so doing, are really fumbling around in the dark to kind of grasp at straws and figure out what what's going on here with all this. This is particularly mobilized around the fact that at the turn of the 20th century, medical doctors were obviously incredibly obsessed with women's bodies and making sure that they were the right kind of women's bodies. So the reason that I, I kind of reference that extreme medical interest in women's bodies, uh, fertility, pleasure, uh, all those things, right, is because masculinities, especially early on, were kind of existed as an oppositionally defined concept, you kind of got to what is a right man by finding out what is a right woman and also what is a wrong woman. And then from those things, essentially those initial kind of moves towards establishing what masculinity was flowed from that. So I don't want to get too deep in the sexology in, in part because it is kind of abrasive to read. Um, that said, I think one of the one of the things that I've learned to do the best, and, and in part listening to the series, is try to read especially theory more generatively and generously, which it feels like su such a performance at times, but understanding the kind of historical place in which these sexologists wrote, and the mm -hmm. fact that many of them were either queer themselves or not homophobic, and in, in fact, mm -hmm. very much advocating for the people that they were writing about, helps to kind of push back against the incredibly dated language, the medicalization, all those sorts of things. Okay, so can you talk to us a little bit more, Aspen, about like the function of whiteness as hegemonic in the scholarship? 
So I think we can think of whiteness as kind of a hegemonic or umbrella sort of force, both in the Harry Potter books and obviously in our modern world in many places. Mm. But I think also similar to the way that we're thinking about masculinities, we can think about whiteness as similarly defined in opposition to the imagined incorrectness of blackness or anything that is not whiteness. But in this context, I think largely um, we're largely thinking about blackness. I think one one interesting text that we can look to um, to reference or, or kind of um, understand how this process works is Dana D. Nelson's National Manhood. Uh, and Nelson is a historian, and the book basically tracks the process of Irish immigrants to, to the United States slowly becoming classed as white. And Nelson really gives attention to the fact that the kind of class conditioning, the class conditioning that's related to leisure is also very much tied to racial positioning, especially in those kind of early moments of, of uh, European white immigration into the United States. Can you unpack a little bit more about what that means to link like class, leisure and race? Yes. So whiteness, um, as it was kind of developing as an initial concept, it wasn't really firm around the edges. And I mean, I think in many ways it still isn't, um, which is why I think it, it, for a long time, in addition to the power that it has socially, it was why it was very kind of hard to grasp as an academic subject. But I think it, it, Nelson is pointing to the fact that depending on where you were on this kind of imagined class ladder in the United States, that very much defined more so than the pigmentation of your skin, whether or not you would be understood as white. So the upper class folks who performed a certain kind of leisure, they play tennis, they play golf, they belong to fraternal organizations. Those folks, they're white, but the, but the bricklayers, the early construction workers, all those Irish folks, those Italian folks, no, they're not white because they don't have the same kind of markers of difference that were relevant at the time. So, like we cannot read race, we also, I think, maybe if I'm understanding the lessons here, can't read gender. Yes, that we have treated gender as another thing that we have treated as readily legible. When in fact... Yeah, I, th I think the, that the issue is, is, that, is just an ongoing assumption that anything ought to be legible and that like a, a sense of clarity or an ability to categorize is important in our world. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a very I mean, you've referred earlier to sort of the problem, one of the problems of sexology being medicalization, which we didn't really get into, but is sort of part of this this general desire to make medicine as a field the defining field that gets to say who we are based on what our bodies are like and what our bodies do and we see that you know all over the place in the 21st century this insistence on like okay well when it but when it comes down to it like what are the medical interventions that must be made with this person like you know what needs to be known about them when they go into a hospital like there is this this tendency to sort of default to the medical field as though it is a neutral and objective field that we have like layered culture and society on top of rather than the medical field being itself just like profoundly interior to ideology. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I a hundred, like a hundred percent. And I think med like medical anthropologists think about this double-edged sword a lot. Right. And, and with, with something like, uh, autism or something like trans transness the the fact that something becomes medicalized in some ways lends it legitimacy and 
in many ways gives people the ability to access resources that they might not be able to otherwise. Mm-hmm. My insurance pays for, pays for my drugs because they understand me as having a problem. But otherwise, otherwise, if I w- if I didn't code it as such, I would not be able to do that, right? In so doing, you 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 take folks oftentimes already at the borders of society and other them a little bit further to theoretically give them something back. So we've been talking about obviously our like queer post structuralist dream of like a non medicalized, non categorized, non scopophilic. I'm making hand gestures that suggest just like the groovy future that liberals want. But let's let's talk about the flip side of that because we want to talk today not only about masculinity and white masculinity but also about like white masculine fascism and white masculine nationalism which seems like it is sort of the most extreme version of a desire for both whiteness and masculinity to be like real stable things. Yeah. So, so I think with those kind of like stable understandings that you're talking about, I think what's great about masculinity studies is that we're moving away from understanding stability as something that uh, kind of really exists and something that people ought to uh, aspire towards. However, that is very much not true for a lot of the folks that are kind of doing some work to Trojan horse, white nationalist or fascist ideas into um, what they are packaging as much more mainstream and oftentimes rhetorically quite strong arguments on their surface level. Can you give us give us an example? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a poor example of rhetorically strong is Trump. Right. But I mean, I think Canada's own very happy that the us in the United States don't have to claim him. Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris. Uh, Steven Crowder, Charlie Kirk, lots of kind of faux intellectuals who have operationalized a very particular rhetorical strategy such that they don't really lose arguments in public and in so doing can kind of say largely what they want um, with uh, with no kind of context and also without fear of an effective response. Can we maybe just in case it's not a term, I know it's a term that we're really familiar with in North America. I don't know how widespread it is internationally can we just briefly define white nationalism yeah and I, so so I, I use I use this terminology not very comfortably um, because I, I use the terminology because it's the language that my interlocutors use um, when I study this issue they prefer to situate themselves as uh, nationalists white nationalists who are interested in creating the possibility of a separate state in which uh, whiteness would be allowed to flourish and would essentially be a requirement. And in so doing, they hope to turn away from the idea that they are supremacists in that they're, the, the, the line is almost always something like every racial group deserves dignity and respect. It's a very easy way to kind of get around the issue of hatred, even though it in no way gets around the issue of hatred. We've seen signs where it's like it's uh, there, it's not wrong to have pride in your race, that kind of thing. Right. Okay. There was a perfect example of this kind of discourse um, around masculinity in a Twitter thread that Canada's own Jordan Peterson wrote just yesterday. He was saying that not only is there nothing wrong with men, in fact, we need men because they build our sewers 
and our infrastructure and are out working in the rain and the storms doing vital physical work. And we should be grateful for men, which is rhetorically a very classic Jordan Peterson kind of move. It's a kind of bait and switch that's like, well, that's what people aren't talking about. Like when people critique masculinity as a formation, they are not talking about like working class labor and the importance of infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. Like the sound bites go really well if you decide not to ever investigate any of the sound bites, I think. And based on the way media, many folks engage with media, myself included, that um, it can be really easy to rabbit hole yourself into a topic or into a way of thinking um, without really engaging with uh, the background for that way of thinking. Um, mm. And Peterson's ability to use straw man, sing with Crowder, sing with Kirk, um, the, the, the effective straw manning and the whataboutism is very powerful. So Aspen, we're going to talk in detail about Harry Potter and about Draco <laughs> and about white nationalism and understanding Death Eaters in the context of white nationalism. Can you help us understand why it is that we're seeing this slide to the right? Is there something about this particular historical moment that is causing the sort of collapsing of white nationalism and hypermasculinity or toxic masculinity? I think one way that we can think about why this kind of slide is happening, um, and I think we can think about the slide happening uh, both to the left and to the right, in particular, uh, folks around 30 and under 30 are figuring out that the current system doesn't really work um, for anyone. Um, and the the reaction is usually one of two extremes. I think the the difficulty in kind of living in the modern world for both middle-class white folks and middle-class white men and lower-class white men who aspire to uh, aspire to middle-classness, they are looking for a way to make meaning in their lives uh, it, it, without the kind of ac economic resources that were kind of the bedrock of Americans of white American society in the 1950s mm -hmm. and 60s, and that are fundamental to sort of the promises that were made about what it meant to be American and white and a man. Yes, entirely. So, like, I think it's important to, to kind of pay attention to or look to some of the mechanisms that allow for and encourage movement into either like into these particular movements and these particular ways of thinking. So so a big a big thing is just the notion of blind allegiance and kind of uh, kind of alongside with alongside that um an ongoing demonstration of commitment. So the the first order of business is allegiance to either a group or a leader or a way of thinking um and having that as a, essentially a fundamental bedrock for how you approach the world. Lots of lots of kind of old um old writing about uh fascism uh, particularly from the Nazi era talks about this kind of stealing process of becoming this kind of blindly allegiant and incredibly committed soldier um in the act of like moving towards a an imagined nation. And that's tied up with masculinity, like being a blindly allegiant soldier in service of the nation. A hundred percent, right? There, there, there's, no, there's no need for questioning. And also there's no possibility for questioning because the fasci fascism by, in, by definition is disinterested in authority being questioned. And then I think that leads us a little bit into kind of this second condition, which is this kind of outright inability to question the narrative and or the kind of supreme knowledge that conditions that fundamental bedrock. So 
if we think about the Derrida approach of archival studies and and the archon, it privileges the notion that we are, and obviously Derrida is not saying that the archon is what we ought to aspire to, but it privileges the idea that there can be a central form of knowledge in the first place, that there is a root to knowledge, right? There is a stable thing. That there's a truth and, and somebody somebody can know it. Right. And somebody does and you need to listen to them. And then in contrast, if we think kind of a little bit more about the way we were speaking about gender or genders in the beginning, in terms of thinking about doing archival studies or research or theory in general as bricolage, as pulling together lots of tiny little bits, smacking them together, and then just seeing what you end up with. In my opinion, that ends up generating something that's much a much more rich history and also helps us avoid the pitfalls of being stuck in a, a stuck in a singular narrative. Oh, Aspen, the way that you were talking about like defining masculinity around a willingness to be totally loyal to a charismatic leader really makes me think about like a certain book which is about like <laughs> a protagonist and his like matching antagonist sort of defining their their emergent masculinity around their adherence to charismatic leaders and cult like organizations. Is it, it the Bible? No, it's not the Bible. It's in fact Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. So I really want to talk about it now. Can we can we do that? <laughs> yes, please. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You know who never troubles themselves with social expectations of gender? Whom? Owls. Let's follow suit and dissect the representations of masculinity in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. As tempted as I am to start our conversation sort of high level and talk about, like, masculinity in this series in general, I actually really want to take up that segue you offered us there, Aspen, and think about sort of potential parallels between what's going on with Harry in this book and what's going on with Draco in this book. Yeah, so I think kind of navigating the book again, I was surprised at, to, to me, what felt like analogs. And, and I, I, I think it's important to say that these are not direct analogs, right? These are not equivalencies. But what troubled me was that I remember the socialization of Draco as a Death Eater as incredibly stressing to read to me, uh, even as someone who didn't didn't like Draco on my first read because I was a small child. But seeing kind of seeing the book again, having with some new lenses to kind of apply to it, I was not equally, but also disturbed by the way that Harry is socialized both into the order and socialized um, as kind of a subsidiary of Dumbledore's charismatic authority. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really useful for us in reading these two relationships 
critically as almost analogs is the fact that because the story is told from Harry's perspective, we are then access to all of the ways in which he is frustrated by Dumbledore's insistence on complete obedience. Yeah, obedience, compliance, dependence. Like, we see Harry get mad. We see Dumbledore get mad. We see Harry get mad at Dumbledore for being mad at him. Like, these are things that play out before our eyes. Whereas with Draco, the closest we get to understanding where he's at is when we discover him crying in the bathroom. And like, speaking of masculinities, like, if a young man is crying, that is is supposed to indicate to us a pretty serious state of despair, desperation, unrest, unease. And it distresses Harry. That is a really pivotal moment where all of a sudden, like, Harry has been understanding himself and Draco as nemeses and really treating himself as like, I am the hero of the story and Draco is the bad guy and my job is to defeat the bad guy. And then in that moment where he sees Draco crying, it's like you can see just the first glimpses for him of this understanding that, like, people might get sucked into the Death Eaters for reasons other than they are just innately evil people who love being evil. Totally. I still remember so viscerally reading that scene for the first time and believing that this was going to be a moment where Draco reaches out to Harry or where Harry like extends a hand to Draco and is like, hey, man, there's another way. But it turns immediately to violence. So violent. I think maybe the most violent encounter between those two characters. It's got to be, right? It's the only one where one of them literally almost dies. I 100% agree. And I think it is telling that it does end in violence in that I think uh, even before they're socialized into the two kind of uh, competing extremist organizations that they belong to, their school has largely taught a lot of violence. And like, in addition to that, they, they don't necessarily have the models of masculinity in their lives that are supposed to be those incredibly fruitful and generative things. And I think we can kind of question whether or not that's a reality in terms of why are we looking for folks of specific genders to give us like the specific thing that's associated with their gender as we see it? But yeah, it doesn't seem like they have access to having having that ability to, to reach out a hand or to empathize. Now, we've pointed already to this sort of analog between what's happening with Harry and what's happening with Draco. And I think that's something that's worth looking at a little bit more to be like, okay, they're both undergoing a kind of indoctrination in this book. And that indoctrination has, like, some interesting parallels and then some, like, really striking differences, you know? And I want to point to one of the obvious differences first, which is that at no point is it implied that, like, if Harry fails to obey Dumbledore, say, his family will be killed, right? Like, the stakes are pretty different. You know... I would argue that the stakes are quite similar in that if Harry doesn't succeed, everyone he knows and loves will probably die, right? So it won't be Dumbledore who kills them as a punishment, but like they are at risk and Harry is told that he's the only one who can do this, just like Draco is told it's got to be him. 
That's definitely the chosen one narrative. And also, right, the monomyth kind of circling back around. The forms of socialization that are happening for both of them very much rely on that monomyth as kind of a central central moving figure. They are always already the center figure in their own lives. And because they're unable to distance themselves from that possi- from the possibility that that might not be the case, again, they're not able to make that connection or see that they're experiencing analogous forms of socialization, right? And I, d- I do want to make it clear that I, there is a huge difference between the Death Eaters who are killing all these people and have like in- incredibly racialized ways of approaching who ought to die and mm-hmm. the Order of the Phoenix, right? Like the objectively very entirely different organizations. However, yeah. the methods with which they're bringing both of these people in are similar. Yes, yes, that's very well put. And particularly, I think, this this idea of needing to demonstrate your loyalty by not questioning, which is so striking, I think, in particular in Harry's interactions with Dumbledore in this book, because previously Dumbledore has been a figure who has encouraged questions, who has really been like, yeah, Harry, absolutely, you should be questioning what's happening. You should be, you know, all of a sudden, like, this is the book where the urgency is cranked up because Dumbledore knows he's dying. And he's like, cool, I've got just this span of time left to really turn this child into the soldier I need him to be, which is what he's doing. Even if that's a soldier in aid of a good cause, he is still turning him into a soldier. And a big part of what seems to be be entailed in that process is Harry learning to not question Dumbledore's authority. And that is kind of distressing. A hundred percent. It feel to me, it feels even, it feels more and more distressing um, as you, as you get deeper into the book. I think again, like the, the monomyth thing is even present for Dumbledore, even though he imagines Harry as this central, and I mean, correctly, it's this central important figure in this war against everything, more or less. He can't he can't externalize enough to think, hey, maybe I could just like talk to some other folks about this and we could like <laughs> figure out something down the line. Right. In the narrative, it feels to me that almost every male white character in the story is approaching living their life as a monomyth other than the kind of counterpoint whites who are the Dursleys. Yeah, I mean, this does answer a question I really found myself asking as I was reading this book, which is. So Dumbledore tells Harry that it's fine to share with Ron and Hermione what he learns on their trips. And I was like, this time around, I was like, why doesn't he also just bring Ron and Hermione? (laughs) Because, like, they are actually going to be with Harry at every step of the way in the next book. And Harry's going to be like, no, I have to go off on my own. And they're going to be like, no, that's silly you'll die. We're coming with you. You know, Dumbledore understands that his capacity for friendship and his capacity for love is part of Harry's strength. So why can't Ron and Hermione also come? Is it, Marcel, is it because the boat's too small? It's surely because the boat is too small. It is unbelievable to me that anybody would have that much faith in a teenager's ability to recount like a lived experience or a narrative, you know, like we are all such flawed humans. We are all like, I mean, you know, that's probably why these books are told from Harry's perspective. (laughs) 
He's probably not the hero. <laughs> I mean, we know he's not the hero. Anyway, no, I I never thought about that, Hannah. Like, why? Why not? I don't know because he's teaching him to be a to have a particular relationship to his own destiny. I think destiny, individuality, bootstrap narratives, personal responsibility. Throw it all in there. Like all, all these things that are associated with what people what like the kind of invented 1950s traditional masculinity that was never a thing until the 1990s. I mean, we've talked a little bit about. Dumbledore as this unquestionable charismatic leader who is, you know, doing things for the greater good. I mean, he is, I don't know, I feel so complex about Dumbledore. I, I like, really love him in some ways, and then in other ways, the more I read these books, the more I'm like, you are awful. But let's talk about the flip side, which is what we see happening to Draco in this book, because... That's, like, our major view of this kind of, like, white fascist indoctrination process. Honestly, like, it's really just that section, that final section that stands out the most to me because it feels the most evocative and also feels the most relevant to discuss in terms of the ways that these mechanisms that we've been discussing actually play out when they are kind of put into stressful situations, as it were. You're talking about the scene in the tower when Draco has disarmed Dumbledore and he's like, I gotta kill you. And Dumbledore's like, no, you don't. Yeah. So let's talk about that scene. So Dumbledore has known throughout that Draco has been tasked with killing him. He's known this from the beginning of the book, I think, basically. And Dumbledore has tasked Snape with killing him. And so Dumbledore seems quite certain that Draco will not do it. So what, in that moment, Dumbledore confronts Draco on the tower and says, like, go ahead, kill me. How do we, how do we read that scene? What's, uh, is that, is this Dumbledore's attempt to unbrainwash or de-radicalize Draco? And if so, is it a good model of how to de-radicalize somebody who is being indoctrinated into a far-right organization. I think that if we read this very generously, if we read Dumbledore generously here, the kind of thing that we get on the the thing that we get out is that he understands the frailty of the of these very methods we've been discussing. While they're incredibly powerful in drawing in folks who who need association, need connection, once people find those things and discover that they might be able to do it elsewhere, sometimes sometimes those connections really dissolve quickly. So so I think that if we read Dumbledore generously, he's saying, Draco, this was never you. You don't have to pretend this is you. And, and it's earnest, mm-hmm. right? It, it's an earnest way for him to engage kind of more honestly than he has with either Harry or Draco in the past. Yeah. So he does seem in that context to understand that it's the the killing is meant to be the, like, point of no return. Yeah. That, like, once you have done this thing, you are a Death Eater for good. And because Draco hasn't done it and has not even been close to successful in his efforts, he's assuming that Draco doesn't want to. Yeah, totally. But both like assuming that, that he doesn't want to 
and recognizing that the system that asks for like such a direct, essentially gift of blood for acceptance is not as effective as the one that requires kind of numbing repetition to generate that same sense of connection and loyalty. A, a single moment of extreme violence is much harder to enact than five years of slowly building up your ability to be more and more angry in public. Interesting. So what we've seen across the book series as a whole is that kind of rote repetition, that it's been allowed space to fester, that like the way that Hogwarts has run as an institution, the way the wizarding world has like allowed for the sort of pushing of the edge of things right that 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 mirrors so much how we how we are normalizing white nationalism right now letting people like people are testing the waters this is what the quote unquote freedom convoy in canada was doing right it was a testing the waters for how far you could push the limits of public white nationalism and really proving that actually you can push it quite far and that, in fact, the discourse that the Canadian government was using was, well, we can't intervene because if we intervene, they will become more violent and the situation will become more dangerous, which really does sort of file right into all of these notions of like, well, men are inherently violent and they must be appeased. And if they're angry, there's a good reason for it. And... So, you know, we've got to let them just express their anger. And so that has been happening. That has been sort of how we have been watching the normalization of the return of the Death Eaters throughout the whole series. And it's been much more effective than the single sort of ritual that Draco is expected to participate in. And, and y'all have referenced this recently, but thinking back to, yeah, the, the scene the scene at the Quidditch World Cup, right? And I, I feel like that's one of the first indications that w- that we get that Draco might not just be a bully, but he might be being pulled into a different way of understanding the world than than his peers, and mm-hmm. n- and not necessarily uh, through his own uh, volition. Yes, yes, that it's through his family largely. Aspen, in your understanding of like white nationalist masculinity or like white nationalist organizations and indoctrination, does the family play like a major role? in reproducing those ideologies? Like, I think, I mean, family is the biggest ideological state apparatus, no matter what the ideology is. But when it comes to these, like, extreme and radical and oppressive ideologies, is it is it more family than, like, charismatic leaders, for example? I think it's a mixed bag. I think, well, from my perspective, there are kind of advantages and disadvantages to either of the, I mean, obviously it's all a big disadvantage that these things exist, right? So I think in the past, I would have been much more confident in saying that the family was a central part of the way that whiteness was reaffirmed, whiteness was made, property was passed down, all these things that make up the systemic and structural issues that condition whiteness as an important thing in the world. But I think recently, and based on my own kind of research experience, um, the, the pivot has been slightly countercultural if the culture is the KKK or the skinheads from the 90s, in that modern-day white nationalists and, and accurately white supremacists are interested in not replicating those same family structures that were kind of prevalent in the 50s and 60s and 70s as those par- that paradigm of whiteness, um, in part because, like we were talking about, those the kind of structural conditions of not having any money means that no one, none of these people are having kids. So it isn't like a white picket fence, white 
Christian nuclear family unit fantasy. Right. And that is actually like quite explicitly derided in many of these contexts now as essentially being falling into the trap of the state and being too docile. Okay. In that sense, the family becomes something that pulls you away from total adherence to this political identity. And so we see, you know, like the Malfoy family get both kind of like semi-disintegrated by the Death Eaters, which attempts to sort of pull apart those familial bonds in order to like insist that your absolute point of connection should be with your charismatic leader, not with your family. But then also, spoiler alert, we're going to actually see family become a way to de-radicalize in the last book. Because of love. Because of mummies. Because of a mother's love for her son. So we've really been focusing in this discussion on these extreme forms of indoctrination into masculine societies and this kind of, you know, extremist, white, supremacist masculinity. But maybe we can sort of round out this conversation by, like, pointing at some of the counterexamples that the text gives us of, like, what is considered to be, like, quote-unquote healthy masculinity or, quote-unquote, natural masculinity. Like, what are these books saying? Because they obviously the books know that what's happening to Draco is bad. It's not like that's being set up as an ideal. Right. But, like, what are we offered as models of what the series thinks good masculinity is. If I think kind of explicitly about how I think many listeners uh, might imagine what good masculinity could be, like going back to our, uh, or going back to your discussion of like no good men, right? Like acceptable, no acceptable men. (laughs) (laughs) Lower that bar, Aspen. You've got to lower that bar. (laughs) But I I think the, 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 the paradigmatic like examples of kindness in this story from men are from the men who are least coded as men. I think, like, Oliver Wood is a great example of, like, incredibly healthy masculinity. The dude is super obsessed with Quidditch, but, like, he's not hurting anyone. They're going out in the rain to practice. Like, that's that's Oliver Wood's, like, worst thing. And, and like, really, other than that, he's just around to, like, have a good time and be nice to Harry. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, like, Harry as the Quidditch captain he's clearly inherited that role like not just taken on the role but like inherited that same approach from oliver wood right like he continues to like try to keep his team feeling positive about their performance even when it's real bad he's so (laughs) mad at cormac mcclagan for bringing toxic masculinity onto his quidditch team he's like no this is not how we do things here we do not say negative things to one another, we lift one another up. We don't explain to the other players how to do their job. We don't mansplain Quidditch, Cormac. Cormac's the type of dude that needs to have, like, how to ha- how to use his hands explained to him, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, that scene is for him. Are there any celebrated, super masculine characters in this series? I'm not even going to pretend that this is my idea. <laughs> this is 100% Coach, who pointed out, the Marauders, but then you, Hannah, specifically zeroed in on James. And I think that, I think it is very telling that our most celebrated and most masculine character is dead. <laughs> oh, no. We do not meet him 
We do not know anything about what he is like IRL except for through memories of people who either hate him or people who adored him. Yeah. And Harry has to do that processing in his head. And so, like, the representation that we get of James is very much, like, Harry's creation of a father figure to idolize. Oh, my God. And and no actual men can live up to that fantastical construct of masculinity, because that kind of construct can only ever exist in fantasy, because people aren't actually, like, men in that way. People are people. <laughs> Are you saying that masculinity is a construct, Anna? I'm Get out of here. Masculinity is a construct. I'm saying there's no such thing as men. That's my claim. There ain't no man. Sorry to flip back to the other side immediately, but like, like these are the makings of white nationalism. Sometimes the the idea that 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 man, that steel, that steely man, that perfect man is attainable is so central to the way that, um, and not only is it attainable, but we're gonna make you one. Right, that that's a very compelling narrative. Mm, I'll uh, make a man out of you, Coach. Just drop a clip from Mulan in here. Mister, I'll make a man out of you. I guess last po- possible, staying with uh, aggressively virile Quidditch players, Victor Crumb, maybe. Totally. But the whole thing about Crumb is that you like find out that he's actually just like a soft boy. Turns out soft boy is, like, the right form of masculinity. It's actually the only form I'll accept. Generally as in the form of a cat. Crookshanks! Ha-ha! We did it! We got there. <laughs> Our softest boy. Aspen, I feel like we need to have you back to talk more about masculinity, because I feel like we have just barely scratched the surface. But gosh, it was a fun surface to scratch. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back and talk more. It's delightful. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes by visiting the podcast section of the Wilfrid Laurier University Press website or, as always, on your podcast listening platform of choice. If you want to hang out with us some more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Oh, witch, please. With a ton of hot new content, thanks to social media intern and magician, Zoe Mix. Thanks, Zoe. And you can reach Aspen at aspen.urning at gmail.com with any questions about their work or this episode. They'll probably respond to you a lot faster than we would if you emailed us. <laughs> Special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach! And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Have you ever thought to yourself, gosh, I wish I could hear more of Marcel and Hannah, but with less structure and also maybe they're drunk or stoned most of the time? (laughs) If so, you're in luck. Head over to patreon.com slash witch please for hours and hours and hours of bonus content. <laughs> so many hours. If you're not able to contribute financially, but you still want to lend us a hand, we would absolutely love it if you dropped us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me just kicking down the cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy about Metlitten, Metalitan, Tess Mia Hope, Fina Yu, The Other 180, Daniel Allen 96, Ms. Tix 68, Hannah the Reader, oh, another one for the Hannah Club, Slappy Yawk, Slappy Yawk? No, sorry, it can't be Slappy and Yawk. It's got to be Slap Yawk or Slappy Yawk. <laughs> and bzz, bzz, bzz. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. But until then, later, witches.